Chapter Twelve of the Lair of the White Worm. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Ethan Rampton. The Lair of the White Worm by Bram Stoker. Chapter Twelve: The Chest Opened. Left alone in the turret room. Edgar Caswell carefully locked the door and hung a handkerchief over the keyhole. Next he inspected the windows and saw that they were not overlooked from any angle of the main building. Then he carefully examined the trunk, going over it with a magnifying glass. He found it intact. The steel bands were flawless. The whole trunk was compact. After sitting opposite to it for some time and the shades of evening beginning to melt into darkness, he gave up the task and went to his bedroom, after locking the door of the turret room behind him and taking away the key. He woke in the morning at daylight, and resumed his patient but unavailing study of the metal trunk. This he continued during the whole day with the same result, humiliating disappointment which overwrought his nerves and made his head ache. The result of the long strain was seen later in the afternoon, when he sat locked within the turret room before the still baffling trunk, distrait listless and yet agitated, sunk in a settled gloom. As the dusk was falling he told the steward to send him two men, strong ones. These he ordered to take the trunk to his bedroom. In that room he then sat on into the night, without pausing even to take any food. His mind was in a whirl, a fever of excitement. The result was that when, late in the night, he locked himself in his room, his brain was full of odd fancies. He was on the high road to mental disturbance. He lay down on his bed in the dark, still brooding over the mystery of the closed trunk. Gradually he yielded to the influences of silence and darkness. After lying there quietly for some time, his mind became active again. But this time there were round him no disturbing influences. His brain was active and able to work freely and to deal with memory. A thousand forgotten or only half-known incidents, fragments of conversations or theories long ago guessed at, and long forgotten, crowded on his mind. He seemed to hear again around him the legions of whirring wings to which he had been so lately accustomed. Even to himself, he knew that that was an effort of imagination, founded on imperfect memory. But he was content that imagination should work, for out of it might come some solution to the mystery which surrounded him. And in this frame of mind, sleep made another and more successful essay. This time he enjoyed peaceful slumber, restful alike to his wearied body and his overwrought brain. In his sleep he arose, and as if in obedience to some influence beyond and greater than himself, lifted the great trunk and set it on a strong table at one side of the room, from which he had previously removed a quantity of books. To do this he had to use an amount of strength which was, he knew, far beyond him in his normal state. As it was, it seemed easy enough. Everything yielded before his touch. Then he became conscious that somehow, how, he never could remember, the chest was open. He unlocked his door, and taking the chest on his shoulder, carried it up to the turret room, the door of which also he unlocked. Even at the time he was amazed at his own strength, and wondered whence it had come. His mind, lost in conjecture, was too far off to realize more immediate things. He knew that the chest was enormously heavy. He seemed, in a sort of vision, which lit up the absolute blackness around, 
to see the two sturdy servant-men staggering under its great weight. He locked himself again in the turret-room, and laid the open chest on a table, and in the darkness began to unpack it, laying out the contents, which were mainly of metal and glass, great pieces in strange forms, on another table. He was conscious of being still asleep, and of acting rather in obedience to some unseen and unknown command than in accordance with any reasonable plan, to be followed by results which he understood. This phase completed, he proceeded to arrange in order the component parts of some large instruments, formed mostly of glass. His fingers seemed to have acquired a new and exquisite subtlety, and even a volition of their own. Then weariness of brain came upon him, his head sank down on his breast, and little by little everything became wrapped in gloom. He awoke in the early morning in his bedroom, and looked around him, now clear-headed, in amazement. In its usual place on the strong table stood the great steel-hoop chest without lock or key, but it was now locked. He arose quietly and stole to the turret-room. There everything was as it had been on the previous evening. He looked out of the window where high in the air flew, as usual, the giant kite. He unlocked the wicket gate of the turret-stair and went out on the roof. Close to him was the great coil of cord on its reel. It was humming in the morning breeze, and when he touched the string it sent a quick thrill through hand and arm. There was no sign anywhere that there had been any disturbance or displacement of anything during the night. Utterly bewildered, he sat down in his room to think. Now for the first time he felt that he was asleep and dreaming. Presently he fell asleep again and slept for a long time. He awoke hungry and made a hearty meal. Then towards evening, having locked himself in, he fell asleep again. When he woke, he was in darkness, and was quite at sea as to his whereabouts. He began feeling about the dark room, and was recalled to the consequences of his position by the breaking of a large piece of glass. Having obtained a light, he discovered this to be a glass wheel, part of an elaborate piece of mechanism, which he must in his sleep have taken from the chest, which was now opened. He had once again opened it whilst asleep, but he had no recollection of the circumstances. Caswell came to the conclusion that there had been some sort of dual action of his mind, which might lead to some catastrophe or some discovery of his secret plans. So he resolved to forego for a while the pleasure of making discoveries regarding the chest. To this end, he applied himself to quite another matter, an investigation of the other treasures and rare objects in his collections. He went amongst them in simple, idle curiosity, his main object being to discover some strange item which he might use for experiment with the kite. He had already resolved to try some runners other than those made of paper. He had a vague idea that with such a force as the great kite straining at its leash, this might be used to lift to the altitude of the kite itself heavier articles. His first experiment with articles of little but increasing weight was eminently successful, so he added by degrees more and more weight until he found out that the lifting power of the kite was considerable. He then determined to take a step further, and send to the kite some of the articles which lay in the steel-hoop chest. The last time he had opened it in sleep, it had not been shut again, and he had inserted a wedge so that he could open it at will. He made examination of the contents, but came to the conclusion that the glass objects were unsuitable. They were too light for testing weight, and they were so frail as to be dangerous to send to such a height so he looked around for something more solid with which to experiment. His eye caught sight of an object which at once attracted him. 
This was a small copy of one of the ancient Egyptian gods, that of Bess, who represented the destructive power of nature. It was so bizarre and mysterious as to command itself to his mad humor. In lifting it from the cabinet he was struck by its great weight in proportion to its size. He made accurate examination of it by the aid of some instruments, and came to the conclusion that it was carved from a lump of lodestone. He remembered that he had read somewhere of an ancient Egyptian god cut from a similar substance, and thinking it over, he came to the conclusion that he must have read it in Sir Thomas Brown's Popular Errors, a book of the seventeenth century. He got the book from the library, and looked out the passage. A great example we have from the observation of our learned friend Mr. Graves, in an Egyptian idol cut out of lodestone, and found among the mummies, which still retains its attraction, though probably taken out of the mine about two thousand years ago. The strangeness of the figure, and its being so close akin to his own nature, attracted him. He made from thin wood a large circular runner, and in front of it placed the weighty god, sending it up to the flying kite along the throbbing cord. End of chapter 12